Reception, a glass of wine in her hand. Oh, I knew she was gonna meet her connection. At her feet was a footloose man. I know you can't. You can't always get what you want. Oh, no, no, you can't. You can't always get what you want. What you want. You can't always. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry, as told by character actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor of SlashFilm.com and the host of the SlashFilm podcast. And joining me today, as always, he is the man who played Ned Weathers in the TV series Will and Grace. Stephen Tobolowski, how are you doing today? <laughs> oh, yeah. Ned, oh, yeah. You know, I remember Will and Grace. That was one of those easy shows to do because James Burroughs was our director. And whenever Mr. Burroughs is directing something, you know it's going to be an early day and it's going to be good. I, you know, David, I was just, you know, you brought this up. Maybe the audience doesn't know, but I have no idea what ridiculous parts you're going to spring on me from my resume. But Will and Grace, the lead of Will and Grace, I believe Eric McCormick. Yep. You do not know this, David, but Eric was my co-star in Night Visitors in Vancouver. Oh, snap. He was, <laughs> he was there. He was there when we did The Alien Detector. He Night, Night Visitor is the seminal science fiction film which you starred in. And that was like uh, episode eight, right? Uh, uh, a Wager with Freddy for yes. people who haven't heard it. That is, the, that is the episode in which Eric was there too. So you didn't know that, but it's, it's very interesting. Or, or did I know that, Stephen? Maybe I was just trying to do a callback. Do you think Maybe. of that? <laughs> Sneaky. <laughs> exactly. Well, Stephen, you know, let's get down to business today because yeah. today... We are going to be talking about one of the hottest shows in television, Glee. Isn't that correct? That is right. And uh, another thing, too, David, you know, you always introduce the show with the Tobolowsky Files, tales about life, love, and the entertainment industry. I believe that this podcast, these stories I wrote today, are the only ones we've done thus far that are about all three. Wow, the hat trick. The hat trick we have life, love, and the entertainment industry with because Valentine's Day is coming up. And David, you don't know this, but also you were a big inspiration in this in this story. Whoa! Well, I hope it's uh, it's a good one then. Well, it could it could be it could be a diss day. We don't know, but but um, uh, you know because I believe this is airing right before Valentine's Day. Yep. And somebody told me, and I think it could be the guy in Boston who may be at the other end of this line, that occasionally Valentine's Day has been accused of being a made-up holiday, a holiday invented by candy salesmen and flower shops. 
In fact, I have known women who get livid around this time of year saying that the holiday is made to make single people feel inadequate. And I also have known a lot of men who about mid-January, they start getting the sweats over buying the wrong present again. But regardless of what you think about Valentine's Day, it does make you tend to think about relationships. And relationships have always proved to be the simplest and the most complex of human endeavors. They're hard to talk about because it's almost impossible to define what men look for in women, what women look for in men. One thing is for certain, it is not the same. I don't know if you know this, Dave, but a group of sociologists performed an experiment in which they took the silhouettes of about 40 women's bodies, tall, short, fat, thin, and they pasted the silhouettes, these shapes on a poster, and then they traveled all over the world. And they had men pick out the one they found the most appealing. And from Berlin to New York to the Aborigines in the Outback to the Amazon jungle to the nomads in the desert, interestingly, men everywhere picked the same shape as the most desirable. It was the silhouette of Marilyn Monroe. Obviously, not everyone can have Marilyn Monroe. Even Joe DiMaggio, who had Marilyn Monroe and found out that having Marilyn Monroe was not what he thought it would be. Because relationships are so difficult to make and keep, people are always trying to simplify them, codify them, crystallize them into something understandable like dating tips. And I'm always interested in dating tips. I believe in all of them. I remember one I heard from the... 19th century, <laughs> I wasn't alive then, I just heard this one, that a woman could always tell everything she needed to know about a man by looking at his shoes. Does he work hard? Is he vain? Does he travel a lot? And that morphed into the early 20th century advice that you can always tell how a man will treat you by the way he treats his mother. Yikes. Um, when I was in New York a few years ago, a woman told me that she looked for potential men to date in sports bars. And she said she would get there early and sit next to a big screen television so she would be noticed. And she figured if a man was going there to watch the game, he probably wasn't gay. And if she could divert his attention from the TV for eight straight seconds, he was dating material. 30 straight seconds, we're talking marriage. Online... They recently had an expert say that the three things that will doom you on a date are bad posture, dirty fingernails, and cat hair on your clothes. Of course, when I read this, I was sitting in my office chair with a cat in my lap right after I cleaned the rabbit hutch. Now, I've boiled down my view of relationships over the past few years, and I, I've made peace with the concept that most men are looking for a woman who can deliver the three L's, laundry, lunch, and loving. Now, some may call it crass. I like to look at it as simplicity itself. But women are much more complicated. They're, they're like walking, talking dramas, looking for the type of film they want to be. And the man provides the genre. It's going to be a family film, horror, comedy. Unfortunately, lots of relationships end up as film noir. I conducted, yes I did, a sociological experiment of my own on a trip to New York several years ago to see if I could understand what makes a woman tick. And very much like the poster with the silhouettes, I went to three bars 
with my friend Greg, and I told three different stories to see what a woman would respond to and if this were a real-world situation, if I could have gotten a date. Bar number one was the famous White Horse Tavern on Hudson Street. This is where poet Dylan Thomas drank himself to death. Greg and I sidled up to the bar. We found two available-looking women. We said hello, offered to buy them drinks, and then I hit them with story number one. I said I was a dermatologist in New Jersey and was having the time of my life coming to Manhattan. Business was so good, I decided to cut my practice down in Newark to two days a week and open up an office in Greenwich Village. And then I would only work in Manhattan one day a week. And on that day, I'd take in some shows, go to the symphony, eat, basically have some fun. Without even a casual glance at my shoes or a question about my mother, this girl took out her card, wrote her phone number on it, and said it sounded exciting and if I needed a guide around the city to give her a call. Her eyes seemed to light up as she asked me how I liked dermatology. I told her I loved it, except for lupus and melanoma. Otherwise, it was all rashes and acne, and within five seconds, I knew either to dry it up or moisten it. Okay, bar number two was McHale's Sports Bar. We found two innocent but available-looking subjects. Greg and I walked up. We offered to buy them drinks, and I started story number two. I told the girl that today was the happiest day of my life. I had finally paid off my bicycle, and I got put on the night shift at the delivery service where I worked, which meant I could continue taking acting classes during the day and start to earn money to get my pictures and resume together, hopefully to get an agent. She didn't check my shoes either. She just excused herself to go to the ladies' room, and she never came back. Bar number three was McAleer's Pub on Amsterdam. Same drill. Greg and I walked in, went up to the bar, met two women. We bought drinks, and I started story number three, the unadorned truth. I said that I was a successful actor in films and television. I was having a great time visiting friends in Manhattan before I had to go back to L.A. and start my next movie. <laughs> the girl put her drink down on the bar untouched and said to me with a certain degree of hostility, why do I meet all the nuts? And then she left. So for all you guys out there looking for the three L's, I would definitely go with dermatology. Of course, this experiment had way too many variables to be usable in any kind of a study, but it does illustrate two points of irony. One, in all three stories, it was the happiest day of my life, and that didn't seem to affect the outcome at all. And two, it would seem that honesty was not the best policy. Curiously, I have never seen honesty mentioned in any online dating tips from shoes to cat hair. No one mentions the importance of honesty. Maybe this is because we all know honesty is essential and we don't have to restate the obvious. Or we know the hopelessness of being honest, so why should we depress ourselves further? Now, I've taught improvisation for the last five years here in Los Angeles, and I do an exercise the very first session of every group, every class, in which we get down to the basics of what matters most to us on a human level. And I would say 98% of the women, 95% of the men, over the last five years, say quickly and with a complete sense of assurity that the most important thing in a relationship is being honest. 
And number two is finding someone with a positive attitude. The human interaction that's most like dating or starting a relationship is an actor auditioning for a part. When you think about it, actors are perpetually teenagers on the first date. They're carefully picking out their outfits. They dress up to make the right impression. They practice the lines they're going to say in the shower. They study themselves in the mirror to see which is their best side and if their flaws are suitably covered. When I first started out in Hollywood, I even used to practice shaking hands with myself in order to see how I came across. And I felt my handshake was so clammy and so invasive, I retired it in favor of the fraternity boy head nod at an audition of going, hey there, hey, how you doing? Good to see ya. All of this in hopes of getting lucky, which in an actor's case is getting a call back. Instead of the padded bra, the actor relies on the padded resume to get attention. It's especially hard on young actors because unless you were Mickey Rooney, you usually don't have a lot of credits. I remember back in the college days, I used to take a scene. I did an acting class and put it on my resume as if I had done the entire production at some made-up theater. So it would sound like this. I played Tom in the Glass Menagerie at the Meadowlark Dinner Theater. And over the years, I didn't get more parts, but I did get better at making up credits. Now, you have to get the knack of making up names that sound like real theaters. And and you could try this now at home. You you pick a geographical entity, say Great Plains, Cripple Creek, Grand Canyon, and then you add the word playhouse or dinner theater to it. It'll sound real. Uh, You can also pick a name from the phone book like Kevin Montgomery or Sally Daniels, and then you add playhouse or dinner theater to it, it. It will sound real. Or you could take locations from the back of cereal boxes, like the Battle Creek Dinner Theater, Quaker Oats Playhouse. It's a little like having a fake ID to buy beer. It all smacks of desperation. But as actors, we're all nerds trying to date the head cheerleader. Things got better for me when I stopped thinking that I was trying to get a part, but rather seeing if I wanted to start a relationship. I quit worrying about what I wore stopped making up phony rave reviews of when I played Haploman in Death of a Salesman at the Cream of Wheat Playhouse. I started focusing on the one thing producers and I had in common, the project. So, my dating advice for actors is the opposite of cruising bars in New York. Be prepared. As impossible as it seems, try to be honest and make sure you're not covered with cat hair. Just a small town girl Living in a lonely world She took the midnight train Going anywhere Just a city boy Born and raised in South Detroit He took the midnight train Going anywhere Smile, they can share the night, it goes 
I had just finished reshooting my death scene in Heroes with a broken neck when my manager, Stephen Levy, sent me a script for a new show called Glee. I was both anxious and excited to get the script. Anxious because I hadn't had an audition in about seven months. No fooling, seven months. You see, earlier in the year, I had lost my voice. I had a ruptured vocal cord, and in the end, I needed surgery, and my doctor told me I needed two months of absolute silence to recover. I was told I couldn't whisper or even sneeze, let alone audition. When I recovered from the surgery, the doctor told me I needed to take a trip where I could remain quiet and not use my voice. So I thought about it, and I went fishing. That seemed like it would be a good idea, not taking into account that when you catch a fish, the first thing you usually do is scream, oh, shit! After that, I went with my wife horseback riding in Iceland. That seemed to be peaceful and quiet until I was hit by a freak wind that lifted me and the horse off the road and threw me onto a lava flow, and I broke my neck in five places. So it was kind of a yin-yang thing. Now I could talk. I just couldn't move. I had a neck brace on 24-7. I could not drive. I could not get socks out of my drawer. I had to sleep vertically for three months. Once again, I could not audition. So now here I was in the neck brace given a script for this new show called Glee. And I'm looking at it and it seemed to be a musical about high school with lots of show tunes and good humor. But, but, but there was a difference. And here is a note to young actors out there. The first read of a script is very, very important. It's pure. You can tell exactly how you feel about a project, and usually it's a good indicator of how the public will feel about a project. This is why you should never give the first read of a script in a hurry with the TV or music on. Read it in silence. Listen to your instincts. When I read Glee, I had a different feeling inside. I didn't feel like the show was kitschy or campy. I felt heartened. It made me feel good about humankind, which is not an easy task these days. And and I couldn't really pinpoint the ingredients that made me feel so good. Because to be honest, everything in the show we had seen before, we had seen the high school setting, the sincere teacher, the mean teacher, the mean cheerleaders, the cute football player with the heart of gold, the gay singing pedophile, all familiar characters in high school comedies. But there was a tangible positiveness in the wacky humor and music that made me want to audition. They wanted me to read for the role of Sandy Ryerson. And I thought, well, that's a good sign. The Ryerson name had served me well in Groundhog's Day. I had four scenes to prepare in about five days to work on them, which, by Hollywood standards, it's a lot of time. As I worked on the part, I felt a greater and greater pressure. It had been so long since I auditioned. It was like dating again after a breakup. What if I did poorly? What would I say to my agents, to my managers? What kind of a blow would it be to my self-confidence? I knew from the Heroes reshoot, which was just a few weeks earlier, how my injury had laid me low. I didn't have the strength to hold my head up. I couldn't walk without the brace. I couldn't turn my head. My neck doctor told me I was supposed to be healed after three months. My audition for Glee was set for three months and ten days 
after the catastrophe in Iceland. I was terrified to take off my brace. My wife, Anne, drove me over the hill for the audition Tuesday afternoon at rush hour. She waited in the car, and I made my way through security and found my way to the nip-tuck offices where the audition would take place with Ryan Murphy. I walked in, and I was a little surprised. The room was empty, except for a nice young man minding the phones. And he asked if he could help me, and I told him I was reading for Glee, and he furrowed his brow and said, really? And I said, yes, and I showed him my audition sheet, 4 p.m. Tuesday, and he looked at my brace and asked if I was all right. And I told him, yeah, 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 I was just thrown from a horse, had a broken neck, but I was just fine. He looked concerned, said he didn't know anything about the audition today, but he would look into it. Oh, dear. Things like this don't happen often, but when they do, there's almost a 100% chance that something got completely screwed up. So, I am sitting alone in the waiting room, alone with my sides, and an opportunity to practice meeting my date in my head. Now, I haven't misled anyone about my resume for years. I got lots and lots of legitimate credits now, but I was surprised at the pressure I felt in that office about being honest over a different issue. Should I wear my neck brace on the audition? Should I not? Should I tell them about the accident? Should I not bring it up? Oh, I took the brace off. I put it on the floor beside the couch. My neck felt fine. But I felt creepy, like I was on a date and didn't tell the woman that I had two children from a previous marriage. I put the brace back on. The young man returned looking absolutely mortified. He told me there had been a terrible mistake. There were no auditions for Glee today. I was given the wrong information. The auditions were tomorrow. Same time, 4 p.m. He hoped I wasn't too angry. Boy, that word got to me. Angry. It's funny, I felt relieved, not because I was unprepared, but because I had not resolved how I would deal with the neck brace issue. I smiled and realized that there was a time in my career I would have been angry. Oh, I would have been put out for the huge waste of time driving over the hill at rush hour, moving appointments around to accommodate the audition, now having to move appointments around again, come back tomorrow. And in the true regret of that young man's face, I understood I received a gift, the best gift of all, a new perspective. I said, hey, don't worry about it. Do you know how lucky I am? Just to be sitting in this room on the wrong day, there are millions of actors around the world, around the country, who would love the opportunity to just sit on this couch on the wrong day and not see Ryan Murphy just to have a script of glee in their hands. I was able to have a nice drive today with my wife. She's lovely, good companion. Now I get the opportunity of having another nice ride with her tomorrow. The way I figure it, I'm the luckiest guy on earth. And this man's furrowed brow turned into a smile. I showed up the next day and the waiting room was packed. Now I was nervous for all the regular reasons. Plus, I still hadn't decided what I was going to do about the brace. After about a 20-minute wait, they called my name to go into the room, and I made a decision. A decision is different than a choice. 
it indicates a life path you're hoping to take rather than a crisis you're hoping just to get through. I made a decision to wear my neck brace into the room. All the guys were there, Ryan, Brad, Ian, Dante, a room full of executive producers. And I came in with my brace on and got some raised eyebrows. I said, hello. And they all smiled and said, hello. And Ryan said, I heard you were the happiest man on earth to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. (laughs) And everybody laughed. I go, yes, you can't beat it, Ryan. I am living the dream. Ryan continued, I heard you had a problem with a horse. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I broke my neck. Well, that changed the tone in the room very quickly. And I continued, no, 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 I should be just fine. But yesterday, you know, I was debating whether I should tell you about the neck brace thing. And I got to tell you, the whole thing's given me a lot of stress. So I have decided we should do this together. Now, cut to a shot of the producers with a look of horror like I just told them I had genital herpes. I continued, I'm going to take my neck brace off now and do the scenes. Now, I haven't auditioned in a while, as I'm sure all you guys have figured out. And frankly, I don't know if I can do this. If I can't, (laughs) I'm just going to put this neck brace back on and walk out of this room, no harm, no foul. But if I can, you and I will both know that I'm fine and I can do this job. I love Glee too much to lie about the neck thing. And if I'm lucky enough to move forward in the casting process, I want you to have the confidence that I'm not damaged goods. So shall we do it? Silence. I took my brace off. Cut to a shot of the producers looking like I was about to show them my genital herpes. I did four scenes. Ryan directed me in several of them. They laughed. It worked. I left. Three weeks later, I found out I got the part. I was thrilled. I was proud. Surprisingly, not so much for getting Sandy, but because I didn't lie on the first day. I've done several interviews for Glee this season, and one of the first things I'm always asked, for some reason, is for some funny behind-the-scenes stories. What kind of pranks are going on? What kind of hilarity is afoot when the cameras aren't rolling? And I drew a blank. Nothing. And I started to wonder, maybe I wasn't on the set that day? Maybe I was in the trailer? I mean... Don't get me wrong, it's always fun on the Glee set, but everybody's pretty focused on getting the work done. There weren't a lot of pranks. Okay, I should go back. What is a prank? Here's an example. Once I was doing the show Home Court, which was a sitcom with a live audience, and they told me that the dance scene I had just shot was blown by the cameraman, and I would have to shoot it again. And yes, I was angry. 
the director told me that the dance part of the scene actually looked fine. And if I wanted to, I could come look at the monitor and see the scene with the camera flub. So as I walk over to take a look, a man in a gorilla suit jumped out of nowhere, landed in front of me and roared. I screamed. I ran, ran around in circles. I may have wet myself. The audience was delighted. The producer sold the footage to Dick Clark's Practical Jokes and Blooper Show, and the lawsuit is still pending. Not really. But that is a prank. Things like that don't happen on Glee. And perhaps the interesting question is, why not? Now, there are a couple of scientific reasons I can offer. Pranks on the set are usually the product of two things. A lot of free time and a lot of job security. Glee isn't the place where you find people with a lot of either. When you have several musical numbers per show, it means running to the recording studio, dance rehearsals, regular scene rehearsals, shooting. No one has time for pranks. And as for job security, well, the show does take place in a high school. Students graduate, students get transferred, teachers get arrested, parents get divorced. You get the drift. A great television producer, Peter Noah, once told me that it often takes at least a year for a show to find itself, and even Glee has had to hone in on its identity. How many songs should be in each episode? What should be the focus of the plot? What is a reasonable shooting schedule considering the enormous demands on talent, time, and money? Another thing, Glee is populated by theater people. People who've earned their stripes on the New York stage. When you've made a life of theater, you know what it's like to work hard. You know what it's like to feel the triumph of a standing ovation, and you know how close you always are to disaster. When your life is dancing on the edge of a cliff, you tend to believe in gravity. It's hard to underestimate the amount of work that goes into one episode of Glee. When we started this first season, I was told I was going to be in a musical number, I Want to Sex You Up, and we would start dance rehearsals in about three weeks. The producers wanted to give me a heads up, and I took the hint, and I started going to the gym every day. I did weight training, I did aerobics, and when I was on break, I watched other people do aerobics. First day of rehearsal, I showed up at the Paramount lot at 9 a.m. I was directed to go to the dance studio which is a place called the Tin Shed. And I was one of the first people there. And before me was that big hardwood floor and the huge mirror. My heart was beating. Zach Woodley, our choreographer, asked me if I wanted to get a head start with the first few steps. And I said, oh, yeah, with tremendous enthusiasm. I was eager to cash in on those hours at the gym and try out the new trim fit me. I faced the mirror with Zach. The dance began with something that appeared to be walking, forward walking and sideways walking. After about 10 minutes, I was gasping for air and on the verge of tears. I felt like the woman in the commercial who says she's fallen and she can't get up. I was actually too tired to sit down because I knew eventually I would have to stand up again. And my internal risk-reward calculus determined that I needed to rest my thighs or die. And that was before we really started. Patrick Gallagher, who plays Coach Tanaka, showed up eating a breakfast burrito, which filled me with dread. Eventually, Matt Morrison, Corey Monteith, Mark Soling, they all showed up. We got on the floor. We faced the mirror. 
the music started, Zach showing us those first few steps. Five minutes into it, we were interrupted by an AD saying that Matt, Corey, and Mark were needed on the set. It's very hard working on a five-man synchronized dance when you only have two people. And it's even harder when those two people are Patrick and myself. Patrick is a very funny, very intense actor who has the distinction of being as bad a dancer as I am in his own special way. Now, my problems seem to stem from a genetic lack of coordination, combined with a fear that I'm always on the verge of a heart attack. Patrick's problems were more mental. He could never remember the next section of the dance until it was over, but then out of some misguided sense of responsibility, he felt compelled to do that section anyway. So at any given moment, I would be going right while Patrick was going left. Zach, the consummate professional, smiled and would say kindly, Guys, shall we try that again? And I would say, yes, but give me a second to get my heart rate below 300 beats per minute. And Patrick would nod and wander off to a corner to eat another section of his breakfast burrito. After a couple of hours, with the two of us slogging away, Matt ran over from the set. Zach showed him the entire routine once. That was it. Three minutes later, Matt was perfect and asking Zach if he should throw in a triple turn right before the backwards flip he had just added. Corey would run over and stand on the side and laugh, watching Patrick and I do the dance. Then he pulled out his iPhone and started taking pictures of us. And no, no, I didn't mind. It seemed to brighten Corey's day. One thing about Corey was he never wanted to rehearse, but insisted he would be great on the day. And he was. Mark Sawling gets the Red Badge of Courage Award for that week. You see, Mark has what is known as a six-pack. This is popular slang for visible stomach muscles. And the producers wanted these muscles to be really visible in a shot that he was doing that week. So they hired this fitness expert who told Mark he had to stop drinking water completely for three straight days to make the muscles poke out and look really good on camera. So I salute Mark because despite the lack of water, he rehearsed that dance throughout the week without his kidneys shutting down. After a week of practice, Zach told us now the time had come. We had to turn our backs to the mirror. Now, not being a dancer, I didn't realize we were reaching a sort of watershed, an artistic line in the sand. This is the point you no longer have the support of your eyes to self-correct. Any error is apparent. The training wheels are taken off. The music started. The five of us made our way through to the end of the piece. At the end, Zach smiled and said, not bad. Just needs to look like you're having fun. We need more practice. I remember something Stanislavski had written. He had written it about rehearsal. He said, we practice to make something a habit. When it becomes a habit, it can become easy. And if it becomes easy, it can become beautiful. I practiced constantly. I practiced at home. I practiced in parking lots. I practiced in the park. I practiced in my sleep. The net result was not beauty, but a chemical reaction triggered by my sweaty t-shirt and my skin that left my chest and face covered in gigantic hives. I looked like a victim on the X-Files in the episode with the human bee. On the day of the shoot, I showed my hives to my makeup lady who looked at me like she just found a hair in her soup. 
she decided the best thing to do was to <laughs> to spray paint me. So I held my breath, and she shellacked me with tan skin tone. I told my customer that we better be ready to change shirts because of the hives and the sweat and now the added irritation caused by spray paint. He told me he would have extra shirts standing by. We went to the auditorium. They filled it with a few hundred extras. The cameras rolled. They started the music. The five of us moved together like a machine. And the audience cheered. And all of that rehearsal paid off. And I have to say, I was proud. Ryan was thrilled. And he called me over to the monitor to look at the playback of the shot. They had cameras on the whole group of us. And then they had cameras on each one of us individually. And I was amazed. I looked like the Frankenstein monster. (laughs) More specifically, the Frankenstein monster in James Whale's classic, The Bride of Frankenstein, when Boris Karloff staggers toward Elsa Lanchester and utters the famous words, We are better off dead. I told Ryan I look like Frankenstein. And he said, no, 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 you look cute. But don't worry about it because we're probably going to use the shots of Matt most of the time anyway. I stepped back into my trailer. I took off my tux. I looked into the mirror. The combination of rouge and spray paint and the massive hives made me look like one of those people in the National Geographic who survived Chernobyl. Boy, I wish now I really was that dermatologist from New Jersey. The AD told me that I'd have a little time before my next scene. So I opened up my water bottle. I started looking at the script. I smiled and thought of a conversation I had had with Matt on the very first day we were shooting the pilot. I asked him, what was it like being one of the leading tenors on Broadway? And he smiled and he shook his head. And I said to him, I heard you guys can't do anything. I mean, anything. You can't smoke. You can't drink. Matt laughed and rolled his eyes and said, hey, you can't party. It hangs over you everywhere you go. You're a prisoner of the high A. I said, excuse me? He said, the note in music. Every night as a tenor, you have to face that test of hitting the high A. It's why you have to live so cautiously and be so disciplined. Some nights it's there, some nights it isn't. Being a professional means you know that there is an A to hit, and you have the talent to reach it, but it also means you've learned how to fake it when you fail. Matt's words made me smile. If I could make a Valentine's card today for all of my friends at Glee, inside, I would dedicate it to all those who endeavor to hit the high A. And on the cover, I would have a picture of a pair of shoes that have walked many, many miles. Oh, no, sometimes in our lives, we all have pain. We all have sorrow, but if we are wise, we know that there's always tomorrow. Lean on me when you're not strong, and I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. Somebody to lean on. Just lean on me. Call me brother. Hey, when you need a hand, you need. We all need. 
That was Dating Tips for Actors, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, I have to say, I think that was the most moving story that has ever been told in conjunction with the song, I Want to Sex You Up. <laughs> I think you may be right, but you know, it, you know, the history of stories about I Want to Sex You Up, it, we're very early in the process, David. Uh, I say hit them hard and early. You'd yeah. be surprised. There is a long oral tradition of uh, <laughs> so, stories related to I Want to Sex You Up that I think we're, we're only just beginning to tap. We're giving our listeners sort of a window into that tradition. Yes. Um, so be grateful, listeners. Be grateful. Absolutely. Anyway, well, let's wrap things up for this evening, Stephen. Uh, before we go, how can people reach you if they'd like to do that, Stephen? Yes, I should tell you, and, and, and another little thing, too. Uh, you could reach me if you want to email me with any story ideas or reactions to the stories at stephentobolowski at gmail.com. And I'll spell it for one of my listeners who, who wrote a funny letter, said that he finally knows how to spell my name. S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K. Why the Russian spelling? Uh, also, I am at Twitter at twitter.com slash Tobolowsky. Uh, is well, that correct? That, that is correct. Twitter.com slash Tobolowsky. Follow Stephen there. Um, I also want to say something else um, about some of the emails you've been receiving. Um, I love a well-told story, Stephen. That's kind of why I, I spurred you on to, to start this podcast. And, yes. Uh, and, uh, the thing is, some of the emails uh, that you share with me uh, that people have sent in are just incredible, and uh, it helps to sort of uh, keep this podcast going, honestly, because uh, this podcast takes a lot of work, uh, more for you than for me, but it does take a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> it does take a lot of time out of both of our weeks, and um, to hear that people have been profoundly moved and changed by the stories um, is just really gratifying. So, uh, and, and the thing is, a lot of the things that people write are just beautiful stories and, and sort of beautifully put things about how your stories have affected them. So, uh, we're going to try something and uh, we'll see what people think of it. But basically, uh, I've set up a Tumblr blog, which uh, is a blog that you can easily post sort of pieces of text, content, and photos. And that is at tobolowski.tumblr.com. That's tobolowski uh, with a Y dot T U M B L R dot com. It's called the Tobolowski Testimonies, and basically what I've done is I've just uh, posted up some of the most memorable uh, emails that people have sent in there, uh, and I've removed all of the identifying information, um, but this way people can sort of go there and view each other's stories. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, and That's a great idea. Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> because, no, because really, you know, some of the stories I get are really beautiful, and I think people would, would get a lot out of, of, of seeing them. Exactly. That's, that's my whole point. So I've put them there and uh, at tobolowski.tumblr.com. Check it out. If you see your story there, for some reason you don't want it shared with the world, uh, please let, let me know. Um, at, you can email me at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. But I do take out all the names um, and I do remove any identifying information. So uh, hopefully you don't mind. And if, if you want to email in and you don't want your story shared, please let us know in the email as well so we'll know uh, not to share it with people. But uh, I think for the most part, people will benefit from hearing each other's stories. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. And if I could mention this too, because I got an email about this. If, if you are listening to these stories through iTunes, uh, 
or, or someplace. I got some emails that people never knew what I looked like. I mean, except from the movies. And on SlashFilm.com, I've been sending in photos that kind of go with the story. That And, and so you can kind of catch up with a kind of a photo album if you're listening to it not on SlashFilm. You go over to SlashFilm.com and you can actually see some of the photos that go with the stories too, which you may find amusing. That is an excellent idea. And you can also go to TobolowskiFiles.com, take you to the same place, and you can check sure. out the photo accompaniment for the Tobolowski Files. Um, so yeah, a big thanks to SlashFilm.com for hosting us. And, uh, and to Peter Serretta, the editor-in-chief there, for just allowing this podcast to happen. Also, a big thanks to Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party at stbpmovie.com, the movie that inspired the podcast. So, guys, that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of The Tobolowsky Files. We hope you enjoyed yourself. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Ah, tick-tock, you don't stop. Stop to the ah, tick-tock, you don't stop. Stop to the ah, tick-tock, you don't stop. I know you're not going to sing that song. I know you're not going to sing that song. Come inside, take off your coat, I'll make you feel at home. Now let's pour a glass of wine, cause now we're all alone. I've been waiting all night, so just let me hold you close to me. Cause I've been dying for you, girl, to make a love to me. Let me take off all your clothes. Connect the phone so nobody knows Yeah, Let me light a candle so that we can make it better Making love until we drown Yeah, Ooh. Girl, you make me feel real good Ooh. We can do it till we both wake up Ooh. Girl, you know I'm hooked on you Ooh. I know you're not gonna sing that song